0: Hi, everyone. Today on What's My Frame, I'm joined by casting director and advocate, Danielle pratsveld Demchak. Danielle is the co-VP of Advocacy for the Casting Society of America. Her work elevating underrepresented communities has been barrier-breaking. She continues to motivate our industry towards real change and how the real world is seen on screen. Nickelodeon was Danielle's casting home for over 14 years, where she tapped into her love of developing young talent. From live action and animation, scripted and unscripted, long form and short form, and even podcast, she has and loves to cast it all. We have such a beautiful conversation today about representation and how we can all help move the needle forward for equality in our beloved industry. Now, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on What's My Frame? How are you doing today?
1: I am good. Thank you for having me.
0: I am so excited to dive in because you have such a wealth of insight
1: into the animation world.
0: For anyone who is not familiar with your career, would you mind just sharing a little bit about
1: your journey into the industry? Yeah, um so I have been casting since I've been actively casting since 2004. Um and I was at Nickelodeon for over 14 years, so a lot of my Well, I guess to date, all my animation experience that I'm allowed to talk about um, is for Nickelodeon, but I left Nickelodeon in April of 2022, so this year, to open my own office, Um, and I still work with Nickelodeon, um, both on the live action and animation front, and I have a few other um, networks and production companies that I am working with now for projects, but you know, especially with animation, it takes a really long time for things to to come to fruition. Like I had a, I got a really sweet message from a kid that I cast, uh, gosh, I want to say it was either 2016 or 2018. The first season is nominated for an Emmy now. So six years ago, four years ago, but that's sort of the nature of animation Um, is that it takes a really long time. Yeah.
0: I already have so many questions that I didn't have written down. So, for those of us who don't know and I apologize if this is like an elementary question but oh. like now with the world of streaming, everything has its own kind of lifespan of pre-production and you know, a, a a limited series or even a streaming series, you know, they shoot all of it versus a network show. So you're, you know, I've been kind of in this the streaming space so my stuff is coming out a year or two later and that feels like an eternity when you're waiting to share it with people but what is happening
1: in the animation world why it's taking that much time most of my animation experience not all but most Mm -hmm. of my animation experience is in preschool television yeah um and that revolves around curriculum and education and that's the whole other approval process versus just animation broadly. So, you know, something like there, there's like a curriculum when I would get involved from a network standpoint, it would be at the very beginning. So I would know, you know, the network's initiative for this show is like, I don't know why the only one that's coming to mind is like Nihao Kailan. People are always like, oh, what's the educational initiative there? And I said it, it was about like social Um, it was something with like social health and social awareness. So you would bring in an expert in that space, um, but it also incorporated Chinese. So there was, you need the Chinese consultant, you need the emotional awareness and, um, you know, that consultant. And then if you look at something like this show that I'm saying was just nominated for an Emmy Santiago of the seas, you know, there's both a historical element. And then there's also the Spanish element, which is the same thing with something like Dora, um, or Diego, all projects that I've worked on as well.
0: So there's, what I'm hearing is there's a ton of meetings behind the scenes that are far beyond just the lovely, animated, memorable voices,
1: which. Yes. Okay. So there's the, you know, before we start casting, there's mm-hmm. the curriculum that's approved, there's the scripting, there's all of that. But then once you actually record the voice, and they listen to it. There's also a whole standards and practices and whole curriculum team, all of these different teams that review in, in like a particular cadence to, to get it approved to then go to air because it needs to be, you know, it needs to, to fit certain criteria and and be handled with care if it's going to be a, considered an educational project.
0: I have more questions for that later, but I also want to say congratulations on your own office opening this past year. That's awesome. What I mean, you obviously, you still have relationships with Nickelodeon, but what was kind of the inspiration or like what made you think it was the time to go out on your own?
1: Um, I mean, my team there was just really supporting me doing that. They were like, you're kind of, you know, it was, I kind of reached this like fork in the road where I needed to decide if I was going to be a executive or be a casting director. Okay. Um, and I also the way it works at Nickelodeon um, is there is an animation studio and there's a live action team. So I was always kind of doing both in some way, but I wanted to be able to really fully do both um, and just work on everything. I mean, since I've left, I worked on like a really weird, I would say it's kind of like an interactive podcast, but for a really big brand that had a major presence, especially when I started working in casting, this brand had a major presence. I remember, like it's not progressive insurance, but it's like their flow Okay, coming in for me for an audition and being like mind blown, like just that this person is auditioning because, you know, they don't want to be only flow. They want to be all these other things, but it's a brand that really hasn't been, uh, you know, making a mark the same way they've been obviously active, but not not the same way in like cultural stuff for like 20 years. And they did a really fun, like very tongue-in-cheek project, like that really references like the nostalgia of what they were known for and stuff like that. So that's been cool. Um, and then I was still doing podcasts at Nick, um, because that was considered live action. Um, that was the team that supported it, but I wanted to just be able to do everything and do both preschool and um adult animation if it comes my way and do anything that could be with any brand and especially with just my focus on underrepresented communities it started to become a little bit of a challenge to be um only with one network because I was being asked to work and consult on so many projects and people it used to be that people were happy to have my help without my name associated with it they didn't care if my name was there or if they were happy to have my help for free but um, as we become a more accountable society and we want to say that we did the work and we did it right. And this is who did it with us. I couldn't do the work without my name attached to it.
0: What's the biggest reward of being able to pick your own projects?
1: Um, I mean, I think it's hard because I'm a people pleaser, like to the (laughs) utmost degree. So I have a really hard time saying no, (laughs) or like not, doing something without like, I just, I always want, I want to do everything and you just can't do everything. Um, so I'm kind of trying to learn that, but the, the coolest part has just been a being able to work with different creators that aren't necessarily in like a particular pipeline, um, that like, I wouldn't, you know, normally networks work with a lot of the same people. And I mean, people and kids and family, especially share, you know, it's like the first, pilot I did when I left Nick, it was a creator that I worked with at Nick, I don't know, six years ago, who since then has done stuff at Disney. And then this was with HBO max kids and family. So it's like people all kind of share, but there is like the projects I do with, with organizations like respectability and more developmental labs. Those are new creators and getting to give someone that chance, like to see even just a table read of a project that they do. It's like, they have never seen their, their vision, you know, in real life, like in three dimension. that's really cool to get to see. That's
0: amazing. And I can only imagine how special that must feel on the hard days, being that you have so much experience with voiceover from animation, podcasting, all the different realms. I'm curious for, I want to dive into a lot of different details in regards to auditions, good voiceover auditions, burials. I'm curious, when you're not familiar with an artist, what immediately stands out to your ear? Like what makes a strong demo for you when you're listening?
1: It's hard because I think it really depends on the level of the talent. I am I respond more to a recent audition than a demo reel. I find just because it shows me like what you can do, what you just can do in your home and it's not usually quite as edited. Um, and I'm usually looking for more real voices. So I'm I'm not like the biggest demo reel person per se, unless it's a really good demo reel that has a lot of range and shows a lot of um, levels in. Because ter- I think a lot of times people's demo reels just seem over produced, is what I find. Um, and I especially want to hear what it sounds like from especially in like nowadays. What it sounds like in your home studio. So, because so much of what I do, we have you recording at home or at least having the option to record at home. And I found that I've had multiple times someone do like a great VO audition, or I thought, you know, they did a great VO audition and then their studio wasn't up to snuff or something like that. What,
0: what happened there? Did they go somewhere to record the audition or...
1: I think so. Like they went to like a another fr- like a friend's place knowing that the they had a slightly better studio or a slightly better mic. And you don't need like a crazy great mic or anything like that, but you just, you know, it's that like, if your space doesn't sound good, it just, it stinks to hear from someone like, yeah, we can't use that.
0: Especially if it's gotten to that level. Yeah. Let's talk about home studios for a little bit, because I was curious if with these like bigger projects, if they are still offering people, if they do have a home studio to record at home, do you have any advice for actors that are wanting to upgrade their home space or tips or tricks, things like that, that you could share?
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't need to be anything crazy at all. Like the Apogee mic, I think usually works. Um, just making sure that you have the correct, uh, like padding on your walls, anything like that, that's going to just make sure the sound capture is best, but it doesn't need to be anything crazy. But what I I do think a lot of people want the option to record in studio. Like they want to know that you're okay to go to the studio if it's, you know, the COVID protocols and all of that stuff is obviously accounting for it. I'm like a really big stickler with that. Um that's just me. I know not everybody is, but, you but there. <laughs> but but from a SAG perspective, they are, you know, if it's a SAG after project, they are going the 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 rules are very much in place um but who what i keep hearing and what with a series or anything that's more long term is like who knows if what the next wave is going to be or what the next variant is going to be and we don't want to lose time on a project because somebody doesn't have a home studio or their home studio is not good enough or you know, because we all t- took a few weeks to pivot to home. You know, I know March 2020 was a while ago, but it did take some time. We don't want to have, we don't want to, you know, when you're in the middle of a season, losing two weeks is like a lot.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure because you all are actually using a, a number of actual young voices that are minors. And then I'm sure that throws in a whole other set of concerns and protocols and parents, et cetera, et cetera. My mind is hurting just thinking of it, actually. For younger actors, you were mentioning about recent auditions versus an actual demo. So I'm just curious, how are you accessing those? Because at least for me on Actors Access, you can you have to pay per time you upload. So are you reaching out to them and asking for recent audition?
1: Yeah, that's typically how I do it. And I kind of just advise, also, if you're going to like send me a pitch or something like that just to have that but that can be on your dropbox or you can you know have a website or anything like I know whatever you do that is not like a dropbox is going to cost you something or a vimeo link anything like that just so I can review kind of what the other thing is kids voices change so much that to be investing in a demo reel is is a lot you know and it's not necessarily It's not um, the industry protocol that a kid has a demo reel. So I just never, I never want someone to take on an expense that's unnecessary. And like that is broadly unnecessary. Often reps, because their hands are so full, they're just kind of listening to be
0: sure there is sound there, but they're not necessarily listening to the run for the acting. And I think so often there's this misconception and I'm sure, of course, not at a certain level, but starting out, I think a lot of people think it's funny voices. Is animation and not, act- oh, your reaction. Yeah, <laughs> no. no. Um, so I'm curious from the acting point of view if there are animation classes or what kind of training you recommend both for younger artists as well as adults that have like a younger vocal
1: quality? There are some really great classes. And I think people don't always realize that with voiceover, like what you're saying, it's not just about your voice quality, it's it's acting. And just like if you were going to say, I want to be you know, a Shakespearean actor, like you would take a class on, you know, to be trained for said medium. So there are really great classes. They do fill up like so fast from what I've heard from, you know, just the people that I recommend, like Sarah Jane Sherman is an amazing voiceover teacher for kids and adults. Charlie Adler, who's a voice director, I've hired a lot of voice directors do really great classes. So like voice directors I've worked with a lot, like Charlie or Darren Dunstan is another great. Um, voice director that I've worked with. I think a lot of the other voice directors I've worked with are not doing classes right now. So I'm like hesitant to say their names. Um, But a lot of the other thing that's great is most classes are online right now. Bob Bergen is a great animation coach and he's like a legend in the business. I mean, you want to work with someone who works because that's the other thing is, you know, people are always asking me to coach and do things. I just don't have time for it. But you want somebody who is in the audition room on whatever side they are, like that they're still, or in the sessions, like a Charlie, like that, you know, knows what the trends are, knows what's booking, knows who's booking, knows what sounds, you know, certain networks are looking for, because it is different. It's You know, just like when you watch something and the style is different, the voiceover Uh, performance that that brand is looking for or that particular sect of the brand or that particular series is looking for is different so doing your research as an actor to know like oh I'm going in for this production company that in the past did this series they they look for this type of sound obviously based off who they booked is is doing yourself a huge favor
0: you no, I was just having a conversation with a friend and they work in theatrical casting and they were like, there's no gateway instrument for acting. And I think that's so often why that everybody's just like, oh, well, I can act or I have a funny voice or I can do this because it's not learning to play the guitar. It's not tap dancing. It's, you know, it's not electric guitar, what have you. It's, it just, it's, people are being, and if they're really talented, it looks like they're doing nothing, but there's so much to it. And and that's why I'm a big proponent of, that's why we go to classes to make it look easy, but there's work there. And there's also a lot of detective work. I'm curious, just like you were saying for different genres, obviously look and see on their IMDb what else they've been working on, but could you go through a little bit, either your process now or your process in the past, how you go through and sort auditions from headshot trends and styles that you like, um, just kind of what stands out to you and how you do your first pass to make your selects.
1: For voiceover or for live action?
0: Um, For voiceover first, and then I would love to hear about live action because I do want to talk about um, the new Blue's Clues movie at Paramount. For the animation side, what element headshots even play for you into that casting process?
1: I mean, I don't really care what your headshot looks like for a voiceover. I just, I, I do want to know a little bit more about you if I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So I do sometimes want to see what your photo is. It depends on the project. If it's um, a voice match for a series, I'm really listening for your voice. Mm-hmm. It's like a mathematical equation almost. It's like, if I listen to that other voice and then I listen to your voice, how much can I tell the difference versus, how much do I think like someone who doesn't have that level of listening experience could tell the difference? It's not, and then sometimes I'm surprised when I do look the person up, if I don't know that much is less common now, but before it would be where I'm like, oh my gosh, you're there like voicing a, you know, it's a, I'm recasting a child of, you know, a specific ethnicity and another child of a different ethnicity that's 3 years age difference is giving me the exact right read but then i also think to myself okay 3 years age difference they're going to age out soon maybe they're not a fit but if if they're if it's just a surprise that wow that kid is the original cast member was black and this kid is asian but they sound exactly the same when i close my eyes who cares um unless the character is animated as the ethnicity specified, um, which then I would never do that. But I'm saying usually if it's, if it's a voice match or something like that, it's less about anything with the person's photo or something like that, as long as they meet what the character needs to be from just a ethnicity and demographic and ability perspective. If it's something where I'm casting the original and I want to kind of know the person better, I definitely look things up. I would love to see a photo, but it doesn't need to have like a, it doesn't need to be a headshot from a composition standpoint. By the time I would need a headshot, it would be when the show goes to press, they might want a headshot of you. Um, It won't be me asking for it. It'll be the press department at said network. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might ask me to get it for them, but like, it wouldn't be for my usage per se, Um, but I will definitely listen to demos before or, or with, and I, my process is I listen to everything and then I divide and I divide things into folders. Um, and sometimes I also do like my Google sheets while I'm listening so that, um, or I divide it into folders that are like even more specific than like a list B list. Like it'll say select sometimes, you know, you're with, especially with voiceover, you're looking to cast um multi like multiple roles with the same voice so I might write like select only if once I get to their their read for the other role it's it's outstanding because I they weren't the they would be more of a b-list for the first role or something like that so I kind of have like my own weird process of how I review things but um with live action, I write notes on right on my EcoCast. I upload everything to EcoCast just so it lives in like a database. Okay. And then I write notes on everything and everyone. And that's been what I've been doing since you really started using EcoCast only. Like that's really how I, you know, as opposed to, I, I've used other software like Casted and Casting Networks and Casting Workbook and all of that. But I like to just have everything live in one place. So I would say that's been my that's where I leave my notes. And sometimes, you know, three years later, I go back and I'm revisiting those notes.
0: It always blows my mind how the longevity of our past auditions and past notes that were left. And I think it's a good reminder to uh, always focus on doing your best and booking the office, not the job, because um those things live on, they have a life of their own. Um,
1: but anyway. Sure. And people are always shocked by that when I'm like, Oh, like I shared this, this, or like, why did I book this? So I had something this week, a voiceover project where I told the the performer, I was like, this is from an audition you did in May, 2021. Um, I shared it with these producers saying, I'm, like when you're ready, let's have these people audition. It was a very specific need. And so I was like, oh, th- like these are the best people for this. Um, These 10 performers or something. And I was like, this, you know, this is the person who booked it. And then these were the other nine people that were in the mix. And then I just got an email that was like, we don't need to hear an audition. We we loved what we heard of, from her and she booked it.
0: Yeah. And only imagine how great that actor felt that day like no yeah audition, no stress just hey you did a great job last year here's a new yeah. opportunity
1: wow yeah and it's like for a major brand and it was not like I really thought it was going to be an audition process for me too like that I was going to yeah. you know be having to ask all these actors to audition and work and create sides and do all of these things that I didn't have to do any of my job other than make an offer. And she was also on like a road trip, which was fine the timing worked out. But I was like, that's of course what would happen. Like she probably hasn't like gone on a trip since 2020.
0: No, no. As soon as we leave like a certain mile radius from Los Angeles, it sends up signals somehow it's, it's without fail. And, um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that's when we do our Remote recording. Yep. Yeah, that's when we start figuring out how we throw towels on things and get a bathroom to start sounding right.
1: <laughs> exactly. I was like, you're fine. Wait till you get home. I can totally wait for you. We can, the dates were like the earliest they wanted to record. She was technically going to be home by, not by the exact hour, but the same day. So I was like, don't rush. Don't worry. Like you're fine. But, but it's the best feeling when you can tell somebody like this tape that you thought was garbage, you know, like you. <laughs> you thought it was garbage for me is not. And I, I end up pulling things from other auditions all the time, especially to show range, even if it's not asked of me, just because, you know, people, you never know what you're going to get from someone the day that they audition. You never know. Like right now, my nose is like insanely stuffy. Like I, I wouldn't want to audition today, but if that was the day I needed to audition, like to give you reference that, you know, Two weeks ago, I had this other audition. I would rather have that than nothing.
0: I love that. And casting is always on our side. And there's, I, of course, I miss that, like, in-person, like, connection for live action. But I don't think anything has changed on casting side. If, If not, it's more so that you all are championing for us and putting together things to give the, you know, the string of people that give approval this feel for the artist that you believe in and I I think so often actors get burnt out I wish that there was some kind of understanding of how busy you all are but also the effort you're putting in we can't be looking for that kind of validation from you all that's not that's not in your job description
1: but and we hold on to things so it's hard to it's hard to put a value on yourself tape because we don't throw them out you know like you know, and we don't forever
0: an eco cast.
1: Yeah, and we use them again or share them. Like I just I cast these really cute kids on a project. These twins um, about a month ago, and one of my friends asked me if I had any ideas for a particular role, and it was it's for deaf talent, so it's very specific. And I was like, I do, but they're not they're not actually in your age demo. She was looking five to seven, and these kids are four. So I was like, I don't know if that's okay, but like let me connect you. And it was like, I had tape that I could just share to show, cause you know, also like kids at age, different ages, you could look, you could be four and totally look five. You could be yeah. four and look three, you know, it's like, so what would they, you know, but to, the kids went, I think they're going to book it, but it's like probably helpful that I was able to share tape before they taped, you know, I can advocate for someone better if I have tape, but like that. It's not like when the parents submitted them, they thought, oh, this, you know, casting director is going to send this tape to this other casting director. And then a much better, much better job than the job I've hired them for is going to come along. But that's part of what casting is, is, you know, we, we advocate for people because the more seasoning somebody gets, the better they're going to be for the project I want to cast them for. So when people are like, oh, like, why are you doing this favor for me? It's like, there's, I mean. I do it because I care about actors, but it's not, it's not like a, it's not that there's no reciprocal value. Yeah. Oh, and see, this was why I wanted to talk to you, because not only do you
0: have this heart for actors, but also you have this massive commitment to advocacy and your work with CSA and Casting Society Cares. And. I, like we talked about before the show, I am a big believer in the resources that our union offers and our sister unions pull together so that we're all working together on the same page. I'm curious how you got involved. If there was someone that, that brought you in or you saw an issue in the industry and that's what inspired you to get involved? I mean, it's sort of all of the above, um, but I... once you
1: get there, you just can't leave even though it's stressful. You're like, no, I must help change this totally um i mean i grew up just with a lot of disability around me and also just you know uh people of all like so people of all abilities i have trans family members i never really knew it was weird or unusual until but i but i was in the business as a kid i acted as a as a kid but i think as a kid just like from a psychological standpoint you can silo things in a way that i knew when i went to my acting stuff nobody had a disability I knew when I went to see family or my mom's friend who was deaf, I was signing, you know, and I've completely lost it, but that was something I could do as a kid. Cause I had it around me and that was, you know, how you communicated with this person. My sign wasn't, I wasn't fluent, but I was saying I could at least, you know, communicate with my mom's friend. Yeah. Um, same with, you know, visiting family that, you know, he was a wheelchair user. I, I never thought anything different that like their bathroom was, a little bit different than someone else's bathroom because of accessibility. But as I became prof- a professional in the business, I saw that there was no overlap. And that to me was confusing because the whole point of media is to, you know, show the world that, you know, that we, that's around us is to, to create a, a real reflection of the world around us. If anything, you know, with, you know, some things that might be a little flashier or whatever, but to say that there was no disability when one in four people have a disability, just, it just didn't make sense. So I sort of started pushing that a little bit um, just to see what would happen. Like with bringing, you know, when I would have a producer say, like we want to look at kids of all races. I was like, well, what about all of, you know, bringing in a kid in a wheelchair, what about? So it kind of became like a thing that would book. And then once you do that once or twice, people want to see it more. Um, and I was finding that there were just not a lot of kids being submitted that were wrapped that were, you know, I was booking kids. I needed to do outreach beyond reps because after, you know, two or three kids that came in and booked it and we needed new kids for each episode kind of a thing. It was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Um, So I just started connecting with a lot of grassroots organizations and I also started working at that point, it was inclusion for the arts. And then also uh, working with SAG-AFTRA's Performers with Disabilities Committee, and just working with all of these different groups within the business um, that were doing work to elevate underrepresented communities. And um, what I kind of found was... You know, I do work with all underrepresented communities, but disability is the most underrepresented of the underrepresented communities. So a lot of my work just, you know, organically falls there, but it's also how I really got brought into it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the president of CSA was Russell Boast, and he was very much an advocate for inclusion. He very much is an advocate for inclusion and he was in LA and I was in New York and we wanted to be doing these events that were, um, you know, being done on the same day, him in LA, me in New York. They would also be like a Chicago division, all these other, you know, offices where all these other areas where we have casting directors. And I just kind of um, took on the New York of it all. And then once Russell, his presidency was done and also pandemic um, things were all one coast there wasn't like a division of we weren't doing things in person so I just sort of took it all over and that that was 2020 but I started doing these events um, with Russell in 2015 and simultaneously was when I was doing a lot of work at Nickelodeon just to elevate these performers that I was finding And we also had a a really big project that went on to, to really get a lot of recognition in the business, um, where we changed the, we, we, uh, translated lyrics from theme songs, like big Nick theme songs, like SpongeBob or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into ASL, which had never been done before. And we made music videos out of it. So it was like really cool and flashy. It wasn't just like a hokey thing, um, and I think with that, I made sure to, to work with production to do it right in terms of hiring the right people um, in, for both the you know having a a deaf ASL consultant on the project, which is called a dazzle, um, which I don't think had ever been done within the brand, and then also having interpreters um, and just really immersing myself in what this culture meant to put on screen because it's a beautiful culture and it's not something that people necessarily understand in terms of deaf culture and what a language ASL is. It's not just the English translation of, you know, with your hands, it's its own language. Um, so just a lot of stuff that I kind of was like, I'm going to learn every, I, because again, I just like to do it all and learn it all. I learned, I learned a lot. Um, and then I decided that there's no casting director that has uh, at least to my knowledge that has a degree in disability studies. So I decided to go on to get a master's in disability studies. So I'm doing that now. Uh, so yeah, I've just decided like, this is, you know, if somebody says like, you don't know what you're talking about, or we don't, you know, this is, we're doing the best we can. It's like, well, let me tell you how we could do it better because, and, and not to be like an elitist, but when you have a master's degree in something, people listen to you as opposed, you know, I need, I need to have that upper degree to, to really elevate the work and make sure that people listen because there, there's a lot of gaps in what we're doing right now.
0: You are not kidding. You enjoy doing it all. Um, I'm not sure when you sleep, but not a lot. <laughs> well, that brings up a really great point. I was curious if you have experience, if you're comfortable speaking to this, if you have come up against well, it's good enough, like once you get a little bit of momentum, and this can be from any side that you feel comfortable to speak on, but I feel like oftentimes, at least I can, again, only speak to the sag a knowledge that I have, but oftentimes we do get, well, that's good enough, we did something, and um, that that's not the goal. The goal is a quality not good enough,
1: Yeah, there's a lot of box checking that still, you know, gets done. Um, But I I honestly don't think, and maybe this is just me looking at things with rose colored glasses, but I, I honestly think people's intentions are really good. It's just, they don't, you know, you can do this whole search and look for exactly a kid that's, or an adult or whoever from the specific community you're looking for, but especially true with kids. Um, you, you know, you can do this whole grassroots outreach. There's only going to be a handful of kids that are really right for it, that actually follow through and submit the audition and do all of that stuff. But then when you get them into the booth, they've never been in a booth before. If you ask them to go in a booth, I mean, when we were kids, I guess they would say telephone booth, like, but I don't know what a kid would think you were telling them, you know? So they're, they're not green. Not. Yeah. Like they've never, they don't, you know, they don't know that you need to ground your voice or, you know, how to, where to slow down versus where to pick up and um, not to go up high when you're at the end of the line every time, you know, they don't, they just, how would a kid that's never done this? know? but also why would a parent of a really smart kid that happens to have fill-in-the-blank disability put their kid in acting when their kid has never seen anyone that looks like them on screen or you know in a cartoon character that was voiced authentically like put that kid in something else they're a smart kid who's much more likely to you know do well in law school than in acting if you look at these things just from like a very you know mirrored perspective. Like you don't see yourself on screen. Why would I put you there? Even if the kid loves to act, it's like me. So that's how I find a lot of kids is that they're like, well, I love to act, but you know, what, you're going to put me on something. It's like, what? Um, So they're doing community theater or they're, you know, and I find them that way. Like right before I got on this with you. I got an email. It was so funny from someone that was like, this is so strange. I know, but my mom saw a production of Annie in Chicago and the lead in Annie had, you know, whatever disability, I didn't get to read the whole email before I came on, but would you want to like meet with her? And I'm like, yeah, if she booked the lead in Annie, even if it's absolutely a small, you know, that's a kid that clearly has a vested interest in performing and what I find is that like a lot of these kids are great. They just need a little bit of coaching before they go in the booth or go in for that callback. And I'm happy to give them that coaching, but until that's something that people understand better that like these people are not showing up with a demo reel or any level of training um, because it was never made, you know, available or seen as something that was, an option until recently. So we have to, we have to provide that education to the producers we work with. We have to provide those opportunities to get training and, you know, make the training not exorbitant so that people cannot afford to do so because it's like the carpet for the horse if you're, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to book something and there's a little bit of time to get that kid coached up, but it's pretty rare.
0: What can we as Able body actors do to support those that have different abilities or just were born with certain obstacles. How can we be of assistance and help to move the needle forward?
1: There's so many like things I can think of, but one of them is just if you were ever offered a role that was disability specific, not to do it. Um I, you know, I hate to say that I never want someone to turn down work, but it's just you know, that's part of educating people is that it you wouldn't, just like, I don't know any actor that would take a role that was blackface right now. Um, just understanding that disability is an identity. It's a lived experience. Um, and just also knowing kind of how to approach somebody when you are on set that maybe has a disability. Um, things like, you know, never moving somebody's wheelchair or asking someone who's low vision before you guide them or tell them that you're standing next to them. Or if you're on set with someone who's deaf, talking to them directly, not to their interpreter, like all there's really great resources about this. Like respectability is a great website to check just to kind of know, um, you know, so that when you are on set, you're the best partner as an actor to that actor. Um, But I, I think, you know, most of the work has to be done by creators and writers, you know, authentically wanting to write this work and hire writers that fill a writer's room that bring this lived experience, because that's, that's who's going to write these stories and write them well. Um, So that's a really big part of it. But I think just being the best partner to a performer that you might meet that, you know, might have some sort of accommodation need or a performer with a with a disability same with if you were working with a performer of trans experience just you would want to have the expertise of you know their their gender identity using correct pronouns being affirming about that um, not referencing somebody's dead name even if it's perhaps on their driver's license or right. mistakenly put on their trailer you know there's a lot of things that are people's because I do cast a lot of performers that are of trans experience, you know, I put an offer out to someone and their name is, they haven't yet legally changed their name. So it's like making sure that that's going to be something that they're not credited incorrectly because of their legal name. So just, you know, if you can ever be just that good ally on set, I think that's huge. And just making sure that you're doing everything in your power to, to be the best scene partner and all of those things
0: and then i'm also curious what resources is csa or the unions putting out there to create opportunities for these actors that potentially don't fully feel the confidence because they're not yet seeing themselves on screen or um what kind of resources can they join or resources can they find on the websites and then we'll link them in the show notes
1: yeah. I mean, we have a whole underrepresented actor initiative within CSA. Um, so I'm, it's we've kind of changed the the titling of things. So I'm the VP of advocacy and one of the committees I oversee is equity and entertainment. And then within equity and entertainment, one of our initiatives is underrepresented performers, is underrepresented actors. Um, we have a big initiative that's being announced probably by the time this comes out. We're doing a big event in December um, and we have a so we need to, you know, announce it soon. But the hope is also to do a refresh of the performers with disabilities uh, open call that we did in 2016. Same with we did a trans open call in 2016. Uh, we've gone on to do Native American and veterans, a lot of other communities. Um, but that's definitely a great thing. And and also when we when we do do that, we need actors to be readers and do all of those things, which is a great opportunity to To be able to just kind of learn what it's like to maybe work with an actor from an underrepresented community that you haven't worked with before. Um, and then there's also just, you know, a lot of great resources. If you, like RespectAbility, like I said, is a really great resource that I work with a lot. Um, Lights, Camera, Access is another really great resource depending where you are, um, LA, New York, elsewhere. There's also just a ton of other great, resources. There's um, two organizations I partner with a lot in terms of performers that are neurodiverse. Uh, One is in LA called Spectrum Laboratories, and then one is in New York called Action Play. Um, So I don't think you can go wrong in terms of if if you see something. I mean, anyone that's doing the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge is another official partner of CSA.
0: I haven't actually heard of that one.
1: It's amazing. Nick Novicki, who started it, is like He's a brilliant comedian and then he, these are all films that are created by disabled performers um, and, and disabled creatives and then the performers are mainly disabled that are also in the cast and it's all created by by them and it's its, it's own festival and it's definitely picking up steam. I, I don't know what I can say that like what's public yet, but it keeps getting bigger every year. I'll put it that way.
0: Underrepresented communities is something very personal to me. Like, and it, it's not something that I personally have experienced, but a lot of loved ones have. And they should be able to see themselves and to be able to pursue those dreams and feel that they are just as realistic as any other young artist that has a dream um, because they are just as valid. So,
1: anyway, we've come really far since 2016, which is something, you know, yeah. when people are, as much as things are frustrating and there's a lot of stuff that's not so great that's going on with disability inclusion. I look back at 2016 and, and you know, the year, everything that's just been accomplished in the last few years. And I look at films like Coda. I look at things like Dancing with the Stars, having Daniel Durant on there. I mean, things that I think people would have laughed at before. Mainstream weird thing, you know, like I'm I'm a big Peloton person. So looking at like Logan being the first adaptive athlete who's doing mainstream fitness, you know, there's, there's so much that we didn't see before that we're starting to see, but we still have a really, really long way to go. And just the understanding of what true inclusion is, like having the access to those resources so that when you do get to the callback, you do book it. Like those sort of things are really the gaps that I'm really trying to close.
0: Yeah, and and thank you because I know that all of those are volunteer positions. And that's all time outside of your career and your personal life. And that's something that you are giving freely of yourself to help other people's lives and careers. So thank you very much for doing that because we need more people who are using their voice because it's, it's not going to change until everyone collectively, whether it personally affects them or not, is standing up for those that, that need some help in the gap. So thank you for that. Well, it's worth well, it. Last question that we ask everybody on the podcast is what is one thing that you wish
1: you could go back and tell your younger self? Oh, that's so hard. Um, that you'll figure it out, kind of, like, because a lot of what I'm doing hasn't been done before, and I wasn't very confident that I'd be able to do it. I wasn't, I never, you know, I was not, I didn't know what, a. I knew what a casting director was, because I started auditioning and doing that, but I never knew, like, if I could do it and I don't feel like my, my parents, they just didn't know because they only saw it from bringing me to auditions. And then they never met a casting director in the room, knew what it was like, but just that, like, if you believe in yourself, you'll figure it out. And, and that there is, and also like not to be afraid to be that squeaky wheel when you see something wrong, because there's a lot, that needs to be fixed and we have to be the best advocates we can when we see things like you have to you have to to believe that it'll that your your voice is important and um you know I never thought when I started doing this work that I would end up getting a master's degree in it and doing all those things but you know, I recognized a gap and I, I felt like I had I had to do it. So just to believe in yourself that you can, and that you can do it. Cause sometimes I'm like, like what you're saying, like, when do you sleep? I'm like, I don't much, but I'd much rather make sure that a performer is on set with something accessible, with an accessible situation than, than not. And just knowing that I have that privilege to provide that is, I wish I'd known that I'd, you know, could be that person for somebody then because i didn't believe in myself the same way
0: Got well, there and you are not going to start tearing up again but you you're, you're doing some really invaluable work in changing people's lives and changing it for generations there's like going to be a ripple effect of we're going to look back in 10 years and think wow that that was where we're at and look how far we've come and look how much better we're doing so thank you for that of course